Thank you for joining us on the Desert Life Church podcast. It's our prayer that you encounter God through this message. Now let's join our lead pastor, Pastor Ben Teepe, for an inspiring message. My name is Ben Teefy, and I get to be the lead pastor of this church. I've probably got the greatest job in the whole world. Don't be jealous. Just uh, be happy for me um, and pray for our church, basically. It's awesome. We're going to share the Word of God together tonight. We're going to open our Bibles in Matthew chapter 8 from verses 1 to 4. I uh, already preached two messages today in our church, this morning services, and referred to this passage. But don't worry, I'm not going to recycle this morning's messages. So if you were here already, you don't have to stress that, oh, great, now I'm going to hear this thing again. We're going to uh, just look at it from a different angle tonight. Are you open to the Word of God? You know, the thing about God's Word is you have to read it receptively. You have to read it cooperatively. When we read God's Word, what we do is we open ourselves like the universe in Genesis chapter 1 that came into being because God spoke His Word over that universe. Started with nothing, with black, murky chaos. There's nothing there. Life isn't even a remote possibility in Genesis 1. Then God speaks His Word, let there be light, and light happens. Something that had never existed before sprung into existence because of God's Word. Now, that's how God's Word works. God's Word doesn't take what is and help you work really hard to panel beat it into a better version, like, let's say, motivational self-help theory. Okay, Motivational self-help theory just points at you and says, come on, be better, be better, do better. But God's Word says, no, don't be better, be transformed. Let a creative work happen. So what happens is when we sit under God's Word and we open our hearts, God creates new possibilities in us through the power of the Holy Spirit that when God's Word is opened, when we think about it, meditate on it, read it, when it's declared in our presence, then what happens is God's Holy Spirit hovers down over that Word and says, well, now I might just create something with that Word. So every single one of us, even if you're not very good at God stuff, and this is what I find phenomenal about God, even if you're not very good at God stuff, And when you think you're really good at God stuff, you need to go back because that means you're not actually good at God stuff at all when you think you're good. You actually always have to be like an amateur with the God stuff. As soon as you turn pro, you lost it. You lost it. That's what the Pharisees that had so much conflict with Jesus, the religious leaders, had because they thought they'd turned pro and didn't need Jesus. And Jesus said, you guys, you got to get back to amateur hour. And they said, that's not fair. Jesus is hanging out with like the tax collectors and the Gentiles and the sinners and the prostitutes and all these people that don't qualify for God's kingdom because they're not pros at it. And Jesus said, exactly. But they welcome my gracious word and it transforms them. They don't transform yourself. So there's a secret to listening to preaching, to prayer, to worship, to um, reading the word, to meditating on the word. And the secret is see yourself as a world where God's spirit is descending upon to create something out of that word. It's pretty cool, huh? And so just one, one, one thing. You're with me, Wendy? We'll send them home and we'll just sit and have a cuppa and chat about the word of God then, shall we? What about the rest of us? Matthew chapter 8. If you found it in your Bible, we might be able to put it up on the screen. I'm reading from the NIV version. It says this, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So just think about this. There's a massive crowd The man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Have you ever prayed a prayer where you're like, God, if you really wanted to do this, I know you could. This man is moved to desperation. He's not not saying, God, if you were powerful, you could move in my life. He knows that Jesus is powerful. He knows that Jesus has all authority in heaven on earth, but he's got a question in his heart. Jesus could do something, but would Jesus do something in my world? And I think humans carry that question. 
It's very easy for us to believe that God is good. It's very easy for us to believe that God is out there and he's powerful. But many of us carry in our soul a question. God could do anything, but could he do something in good? But would he do something in my life? And so watch what happens. This man unlocks an encounter that changes his life because he comes and takes his question to Jesus instead of sits off isolated, pondering it while he gazes into his navel. Jesus, if you're willing, you could make me clean. It's two things, this statement. First of all, it's a question. It's not, it's not Jesus, could you? It's Jesus, I know you could, but would you? That's the first question. But it's also a position of faith. It might be a question, but it's a statement of faith as well. Because what's he doing with his question? He's going to Jesus with his question. Now, this is the secret I've found as I've followed Jesus for the last 20-something years. And when I first met Jesus, I was an absolute mess, an alcoholic, a drug addict. My life was just so dysfunctional. I was just a person in trauma. And if you said to me, hey, Ben, like that, I would freeze in trauma and look at the floor and I wouldn't even be able to move my mouth. I would be paralyzed. I was like that since I was 10 years old. But when I came to faith in Jesus, successively, like the layers of an onion, all that stuff got peeled away. Addictions got peeled away. All my self-medicating behaviors got peeled away. All my tendency to freeze got peeled away. You can yell at me now, and I won't even care if you yell at me. Ask Danielle. She yells at me all the time. Actually, when I was uh, a couple of years ago, after I'd been following Jesus for a little while, I was running a business and I had to inherit all the complaints of that business because, you know, like you really value the complaints when you run a business, don't you? Because you don't want someone else handling the complaints because they get mad at all their clients and the clients don't use your business anymore. And so all the complaints would come to me. And I remember one day someone was just standing there yelling at me and shaking their fist in my face like this. And I remember as I was listening to them going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in the back of my mind, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I'm not even having a panic attack. I'm not even paralyzed with fear. And I was thinking, man, feel my heartbeat. It's just calm. And I'm like, you know, not, not like on the verge of evacuating the contents of my bowels or anything like that. <laughs> uh, and I was like, what has happened to me? I'm actually kind of okay with this person yelling at me and threatening me. And I was just calm. I'll tell you why I was calm. Because Jesus came in and his word changed the chaos of my inner world. And it shifted something. And so now I was no longer what I used to be. I didn't do a motivational seminar, a self-help program. Okay, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I tried all that stuff. But the word of God acted upon me. And this is how I learned to, to, to see that happen on a regular basis, is to take all of my doubt, all of my pain, all of my brokenness, and all of my shame to Jesus. Not to take it to Bacardi Rum anymore. Not to take it to... Winfield Reds anymore. 16 milligram sticks of goodness. I used to love smoking. Every now and then I smell someone walking down the street having a smoke and I'm like, oh, that smells good. Take me back. No, no, don't take me back. Don't take me back. I don't take it to weed anymore. I don't take it to a line of cocaine anymore. I don't take it to a relationship with someone anymore. I've learned to take that pain to Jesus. And in this story, what we're reading is a narrative about what happens when you have your questions and you have your shame and you have your doubt but you take it to the right source. Hey, what about you before we start the story? Where do you take your stuff? Where have you taken your stuff? What about when you have a question? What about when you have a doubt? His question is, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Did I read the rest of this verse or not yet? Okay, let's get there. Jesus reached out 
his hand and he touched the man. Think about that word, touched. Everybody say it, touched. He touched the man. I am willing. He said, be clean. And immediately, everyone say immediately. Crazy. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone. Jesus was trying not to set up like, you know, a traveling roadshow at this point. Wanted people to come to him out of knowing who he was, not coming to him because of what he could do. There's a big trick in that for us, isn't there? He said, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This is an amazing story. There's several things that stand out to me and hopefully we'll get to chat about some of them. The first thing is this. You need to understand just what a crazy situation this is, okay? The person who has come to Jesus asking for help was described as a leper, leper, okay? Somebody with leprosy. Leprosy, a highly contagious, life-destroying skin disease. In the first century world, they basically, you know, these days we have leprosy formally classified as Hansen's disease. And I've gone and ministered to uh, people that have that disease. And it's just a terrible uh, malady. It's a terrible thing to suffer with. I remember being in a slum in Mumbai and uh, there was a bunch of lepers around because they were living on a rubbish dump. They'd been kicked out and cast out of their families. Their limbs were wrapped up with rags and all sorts of stuff and they had just terrible wounds, bits of their body missing, gaping sores, pus running. It was, it was so difficult, the misery of those poor people. And they were shunned. In this modern world where there's ways to treat it and merciful ways to help them, they were completely shunned and pushed aside. And I remember sitting in a small hut where only the lepers were allowed to go and a couple of people from a Catholic charity, some nuns would go there every day and try to care for them. Beautiful women they were. And I went with them. And I went with them. I'm like the only person not dressed as a nun. And, um, and uh, we went in there and they said, first of all, we'll celebrate communion. And they opened up and they handed out the pieces of bread. I was like, that's cool, that's cool. Let's celebrate communion together. And then they got one cup of wine. And they passed that cup of wine around the circle. And I remember when the cup got to me after seven or eight of these men with leprosy had drunk from that cup, I remember thinking, am I going to drink from this cup or am I going to let this cup pass from me? (laughs) And I drank from that cup. And then at the end of it, some of these lepers, they came and they fell into my arms saying, we can't believe you would spend time visiting with us. We, you know, and uh, I didn't speak any of the Indian language at that time, especially the Mumbai Marathi. And, um, and through the interpreter, they're saying, why are you here? No one ever spends time with us but these nuns. And we're able to have such an amazing conversation about Jesus. And that, that, that day, spending time with those lepers, the smell in the air of rotting flesh, the difficulty of the dust and the grime, it takes me back to this story and I think to myself, how amazing is Jesus? See, if I thought it was bad in Mumbai the way that the lepers lived, you should see the way they lived in the first century world. In the first century world, if they suspected you had leprosy, your family had to kick you out of the house and avoid all contact with you. Of course, in the first century world, they had a way of understanding why would someone get leprosy? When we see bad things happen to people, we seek an explanation, don't we? And their explanation was, I'll tell you why, they must have been such a sinner that God has struck them with this disease. So actually, it is an outward manifestation of what must have really been going on inside. That's what they really believed in the first century world. The way they explained that misfortune was, well, secretly, you must have done something that brought this upon yourself. 
They'd kick them out of the home. When the word spread, they'd be kicked out of the community. They were not allowed to live in the village that they were part of. They were not allowed to go to any public festival. They couldn't go to the market. They couldn't go to the doctor. They couldn't go to the temple. They weren't allowed to come into a home. They weren't even allowed within the village boundaries. They'd have to live on the outskirts of town. And the fortunate ones would only have to wrap their face up so their top lip was covered like this. And as they walked along, they'd have to yell out, unclean, unclean. So everybody knew not to come near them. Well, how near is near enough? And in the ancient world, the rabbis in in, in Israel said, a hundred meters is close enough. So think about that. If you had a leper in the first century world, a human being never came closer to you than a hundred meters. I've been to places where people see me coming in like they cross on the other side of the street. It doesn't happen when I don't have my beard and I look like five years old. But, um, but when I have my beard, people think, oh, scary, crazy, homeless man. And they cross on the other side of the street from me sometimes. And that's only like 20 meters. But gee, it feels bad when you see someone like totally avoid you, doesn't it? Doesn't rejection hurt, hey? Being alone and being not wanted and not valued. Imagine 100 meters away. Now, what you were allowed to do with a leper is if you saw one coming, you're allowed to throw rocks at them to remind them not to come too close. And also, you were allowed to come closer than 100 metres if you were holding a big stick because it was deemed like you might be doing a bit of a service to humanity if you beat that leper with a stick and remind them not to show their face around here. So it's very common for them. They did experience the human touch quite often, but only in the form of missiles of rocks and sticks that they'd get beaten with. Well, they yelled out, unclean, unclean, to remind the world, you don't want to come close to me. I've got problems. And the problem was so bad, they, they, they feared they didn't have biological science back then, and yet they feared somehow that if you have leprosy, you better not get close to me because I'm going to get what you've got. And it's actually such a funny picture in the Bible because it's true in one way, isn't it? Whatever you have, you do kind of affect the people around you with it, don't you? Whatever I have, I, 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 one of the things about being a Christian man in my home is I've got a wife, I've got three beautiful daughters, um, they're all heading for teen, well, two are in teenage years and one is on the cusp. And I can just, if there's something wrong with me, I can make that everybody else in the house's problem. This story resonates with me because when I think about somebody with leprosy, I think what we're doing is we're seeing a picture of the human condition. The unfortunate lepers, they wouldn't just cover their face and go unclean, unclean. They would be given a bell and they would have to ring it so that everybody would hear the sound of them as they walked along. And as they rang that bell, they'd have to yell out unclean, unclean. As if they weren't miserable enough already, now they're doubling their misery because they're advertising with the ancient world's technology. It'd be like tweeting to all your followers, I'm a reject, I'm a social outcast. Well, if I tweeted that to all my followers, there's only two, so it's like my mum and my nana or something like that. Let's say, but you know, if, you had a, if your reputation negatively went viral on social media, that's what it was like in the ancient world, walking around, ringing that bell, unclean, 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 not allowed. So this is what I find funny about the story. There's a massive crowd near Jesus, which means that leper has no business anywhere near that crowd. And yet somehow Jesus lets him come. That is a picture of the gospel right there. You know, the... The existence of this thing called leprosy in the Bible, it's always skirted around the edges as a picture of what can go wrong in a human life. Think about how leprosy starts, right? You're walking along one day, and there's just a little itch under your robe. No one else knows, but you know there's something wrong. It just starts like that. It starts as a disturbance, an eruption in the skin, an itch, a tingling sensation. 
and you just keep scratching at it. Remember, they don't have like disinfectant and dead all and uh, bandages and, and um, you know, band-aids and all this type of thing in the ancient world. So what happens is most of the time, the leper's wounds get infected from the way the leper tries to scratch at it and, and um, you know, and, and fix it because it's irritating. And then eventually what happens is it loses all sensation. It starts with an irritation, starts with an itch, starts with a mildly tiny tingle, a private indication there might be something wrong here. But of course, they don't know what to do about it, so they just keep their robe over it and they keep it hidden, privately scratching. And then as time goes on, it spreads to other parts of the body. And why lepers would often lose their limbs is not because leprosy suddenly randomly makes your legs fall off. But actually because as it gets more and more numb and as the infection sets in more and more, the leper starts to not realise what's happening to them. So they start doing silly things. Like they don't realise that when they walk, they're scraping their foot along the ground and cutting it because it's gone numb. They can't even feel it anymore. And then they don't realise they walk past a fire and they actually put their foot right in there and stepped on a hot coal and gave themselves a burn. But they don't even feel it anymore. They're not even aware what's going on anymore. And they just continue to abuse their hands and their limbs and their face more and more and more until basically terrible infection sets in, makes it all worse. When I look at that, I see myself in the story in a way because when I was a 10-year-old and I developed massive trauma and addictions and I was drinking myself to sleep with a, you know, 700 mils of wine every night by the time I was 11 years old. But to me, that was my secret itch. No one else knew what was going on with me. No one else knew. It was something on my robe was over. You could have seen me until I was really dysfunctional. You wouldn't have really thought there was much wrong with me. It was just my secret itch. And I was just going along, trying to handle it. Trying, okay, I'm, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this. I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I haven't got a better way to deal with it. And you can imagine that what goes through the mind of a leper, not wanting to confront the fact that something may be wrong. And if something is wrong, it couldn't darn well be leprosy, could it? Until it's too late and nobody knew they had a problem until it was too late and it becomes obvious to everyone around them. What's that smell? What's that weeping sore that's on your leg? What's that thing soaking through your robe? And suddenly everybody knows and they're more ashamed and they're more embarrassed because what started as a secret itch has now become publicly obvious. And so theologically for thousands of years when the church has read stories about leprosy and there's many, many famous ones in the Bible, it actually stands in for a story of the human condition. Because when we look at that leper, sometimes we're looking at ourselves. Sometimes we have secret tingles, secret itches, secret things that we try or we don't try our best to fix. How about you? The key thing with the fear of the leper was that they were contaminated, that they were polluted and everybody had to be careful because they didn't want to catch their pollution. And the thing about the Bible is it talks to us about human life like this. You know, sometimes our lives do get polluted. And sometimes our lives do get contaminated, don't they? And when you think about it, do you have any secret itches? Got anything hidden under that robe that might turn into a problem down the track? problem that everyone could smell, problem that everyone could think about. Some of us have addictions and we just promise we won't do it again, but we do. And we make vows and promises to God and all sorts of stuff, but here we are, we're at the same source again. Some of us, we are locked in a cycle of pain and shame, and because we're locked in that cycle of pain and shame and other people don't know about it, but we try all sorts of things to feel better. We medicate in all sorts of ways. I did that for 14 years before I found Jesus. 
which was really Jesus finding me. Some of us, our form of leprosy might be that people have spoken horrible, hurtful words over us, maybe recently or maybe from a very young age, and those words have stayed with us. When I was 10 years old, I was terribly betrayed and abused by someone, and I thought, I know what I'll do, I'll tell my dad, and I told my dad what happened. I thought he'd help me, instead he beat me with a newspaper, said, what did you let them to do that for, you idiot, and he pounded me. You know, for the, until I was well into my 20s, I'd look at myself in the mirror thinking, you should be dead. How could you have let that happen to you? You loser. I was so ashamed. I couldn't even walk through the supermarket and look people in the eye because I just felt like everyone who was looking at me was seeing how filthy and disgusting I was. Those words, they burned into my soul. How could you let that happen to you, you idiot? It was my fault. I internalized it into my young adult years that everything that had happened to me was my fault. How about you? What type of words have been spoken over your life that have burned into your soul? Do you realize those words are pollution? Do you realize those words are contamination? And that actually what you have to do is what this leper does in this story is he comes with his pollution and his contamination to Jesus and says, Jesus, would you clean this out of me? Some of us, our form of leprosy, our secret itch might be loneliness. And that results in behaviours where we have dysfunctional ways of connecting to others or getting attention or establishing relationships, most of the time very hurtful ones because they're short-term and we're stupid the way we do it. We jump from bed to bed to bed and relationship to relationship or social group to social group, the whole time wondering why can't I ever really just deeply connect with someone. But a lot of the times it's because we're using people as a way to meet our deepest needs and people are a terrible way to meet your needs because they're broken and faulty too. You just end up constantly disappointed, don't you? You just end up constantly with feelings of loneliness and isolation, constantly getting worse. Some of us, we've learned to rely on stuff and materialism or the quest for money or that new flashy watch, flashy car, that latest CD from Beyonce. That's just Dr. Koshy. Um, it's stuff. We've learned to find our society is a materialist society, a consumer society, where what they do is they make us feel empty with their advertising and then they sell us the solution with consumer goods on the other hand. Do you know what that is? That is dealing with my leprosy by scratching and scratching and scratching, and eventually you end up with an infection that just can't be scratched anymore. For some of us, it's our sexuality, and we've learnt the, the um, expression of sexuality and, the, and these forbidden fruit, the forbidden fruit tastes sweet to us, and we've got ourselves into all sorts of situations, but really what we're doing is sexuality is just a form of medication for us. It's incredibly destructive because it really does something to your soul and it really does something to your psyche when it's not done God's way. This is not said critically, but this is said, man, you can really get yourself messed up with sexual expressions. Some of us, it's our temper and, you know, we become rageaholics and everyone thinks we're fine, but we just can be so explosive sometimes. Why? Because what happens is we haven't got any other way to release serotonin in our brains until we lose our temper and explode. And then in the come down and making up with people, suddenly we start to feel good. It's a cycle of domestic violence like that. And you might not be a domestic violence abuser, or you might, but actually you could have a temper problem that really is just a way of you scratching your leprosy. Some of us, our secret itch is disappointment that life didn't turn out the way we planned it would or the way we dreamed or the way we desired. And there's terrible pain and despair and depression wrapped up in the disappointment of this is not how I always wished it would be. 
and we medicate ourselves in all sorts of ways to feel better about that. It's a secret which other people wouldn't know because it's not like we walk around going, hi, my name's Ben, I'm terribly disappointed with the way life's turned out. Actually, we do something else. We plaster a smile on our face and we pretend everything's fine, but every night when our head hits the pillow and we look up at the roof, we begin to think and we get all sorts of anxieties and depressions about the future, about the past, and we're filled with despair and hopelessness. Who feels encouraged about this list of things so far? Some of us, it's our ego, and the facts are we just haven't had enough love and we haven't had enough attention, and so everything we do is about putting ourselves out there because we need people to give us affirmation. We need people to notice us, and if they don't notice us for a good reason, we'll make up any reason, and sometimes a bad reason is a good reason. And ego and everything becomes about us, and we're self-absorbed, and we're, as the Chinese say, a very small package like a man wrapped up in themselves. For some of us, it's power, and we don't know why, but we hold on and we control, and we have to control relationships and other people and tell them what to do, and people aren't allowed to think for themselves because it meets our needs when we're like the puppet master pulling all the strings, and I've seen families fall apart because people do that. And why do they do it? They do it because they've got a secret itch, and they've got pain, and they've got inadequacy, and they've got isolation, and they've got shame, and we're terrible at dealing with our stuff the right way, friends. Sometimes we're people pleasers and we really fear that somebody might reject us. We really fear that people might not love us. And in fact, I've found as a pastor that most of the time when you cut away all the issues, a lot of humans live with a deep fear. If you really knew what I was like, you couldn't love me. And they live with that deep fear. It creates a wall where it's very difficult for them to trust God because they say, if God really knew what I was like, he could never love me. And actually, some people sabotage everything in their life because they are so afraid of rejection that they'll get you first before you get them. Sort of instead of like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, they live their life, do unto others before they do unto you first. Like the classic year 10 boy, I was um, running a program in a school once and he turns up and he goes, I've got a girlfriend on the Wednesday. Then I saw him again on the Friday and I said, how's your girlfriend? He goes, nah, I broke up with her. I said, why did you break up with her? He goes, well, because I was scared she was going to break up with me first. I thought, boy, it's not just kids that do that type of stuff, that's for sure. We have all sorts of sophisticated ways of doing what that kid did, pushing people away. Sometimes it's our scars and the wounds of the past and we try to get on with life and we try to soldier on. We listen to a couple of TED Talks and we listen to a couple of motivational speeches, Tony Robbins telling us to awake our hidden dragon or whatever it is, and 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 we're pumped for two days. We're pumped about it. But then what happens, of course, is you realise that wherever you go, there you are. And everything that you've got inside you just spills out on a regular basis, doesn't it? And so you try to live well, you, you, know, you make New Year's resolutions, you watch a couple of uh, YouTube videos on like, you know, workout, workout motivation, and then on January 2nd and January 3rd and January 4th, you're really good with your motivation. But on January 5th, your friend Milko has a party, and you eat cake at that party. And you drank champagne at that party. And then on January 6th, you were too tired and chubby and fat and your emotions crashed. So you didn't go to the gym then. And you still haven't been since. How many people got a new gym membership this year and haven't used it? Don't admit it in church. It's okay. I found that if I hang up a chin-up bar, it's much cheaper than a uh, gym membership. So we've got 18 chin-up bars in our house. One for the last 18 years every year and New Year's. I don't know. What's on your secret itch list? Is there something? 
you do realise you're allowed to have it because the, one of the reasons the gospel writers tell us stories like this is what they're seeking to do is to show us two things. The first thing they want to do is they want to show us who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus like? The second thing they want to do is they want to hold a mirror up to us and say, can you see you in this story? And I'll be honest with you, every time I read one of these stories, I see me. But what's important is that I don't get hung up on me. I get hung up on the me that I see being transformed by the Jesus that I see. That's how you read the Gospels. So here, let me give you three observations about this story. Now that we've noted that actually the leper could just be a cipher, could be a character that stands in for you and I. Maybe on our worst day, maybe the leper is the embodiment and maybe that's why people just rejected lepers so much because wrapped up in the leper is the embodiment of everything we fear we could ever experience. Being rejected, being an outcast, being publicly on display, being beaten with sticks and pushed out, unacceptable to everybody, even including God because the lepers weren't allowed to hang around the, to the synagogue or the temple except under very certain circumstances. Let me give you three observations about this story before we stop and we're going to sing one song, and we're going to pray. Here's the first observation. Did you know that in the story, worship precedes his encounter with Jesus? It's, it's hard to spot in the way the English translation deals with it, but actually what the English translation says is the leper comes and he knelt before Jesus. And there's a whole crowd. Can you imagine? It'd be like a rat running into the church. <laughs> Everybody like jumps out of the way. Jacob, do you remember that day when uh, we were doing the altar call and Yehaeus was preaching and a goanna ran from outside up and down here? The only church in the country that's had a goanna respond to the altar call. It'd be like that. And everyone was like on their seats, getting their feet, getting out of the way because this goanna was there. Except one enterprising soul that clonked it on the head, put it in their handbag and said, well, that's lunch sorted. God bless her. She's an opportunist. So this whole crowd's there and the leper comes in and you can imagine people going, quick, get some rocks, quick, get some sticks, quick, he shouldn't be here, what's he doing here? And everybody, what is that person doing here? And imagine the quaking fear of the leper as he walks into that crowd thinking, am I even going to get away with this? I know I don't belong here, can I fit here? I shouldn't even be here, what am I doing? But he understands I've got a problem and he's probably tried everything else which made his situation worse and the only idea he has is when I'm faced with who Jesus is, it's so amazing that I have to go and throw myself at his feet. So he risks going through that crowd. Hey, it kind of sounds a little bit like your first time coming to church, doesn't it? And if this is your first time, we're not calling you a leper, but we're saying we get it can be scary. He comes and it says in the, in the Greek text, the wonderful thing about the Bible, we can read it in English, which is awesome, but it's actually just a translation of an ancient language. In the old ancient Greek it comes from, it says that he came and he was throwing himself at the feet of Jesus. It uses this Greek word, proskuneo. It's one of my favorite words. Proskuneo is the word in the New Testament that means to worship. And it's made up of two Greek words. You take two words and you smash them together so they become one word. Here's the first word, pros, and it means towards. The second word is skuneo, and it means to kiss. So you take those words together and it means to kiss towards, and that can kind of sound weird, but what it actually means is this, in the ancient world, worship was not a religious practice, worship was a political practice. And how you showed loyalty to a king when you entered a king's realm, like maybe you fought on the losing side of an army and you were captured, or you moved to a new city and you had to go to find the king and ask his permission to live there or something, what would happen is you would come in before the king and you would stretch yourself out on the ground and you would kiss the king's feet. 
And in kissing the king's feet while you're stretched out on the ground, while you kissed towards the king, that was you saying, I recognize you're the king and I promise I'll live your way in your kingdom. So actually what you see at this moment, when the leper comes, he's not just like, it's not just a random thing. Oh, he came and kneeled at Jesus' feet for a conversation. What you see is a moment of revelation where he realizes who Jesus is. This is the first story we get where Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' manifesto for how the kingdom of God comes and looks in a human life, the kingdom of God on earth manifesto. And so when Jesus hears the mess, when the leper hears the message about the kingdom of God, he says, well, if that's the kingdom of God, then he must be the king of the kingdom of God. And that makes him a smarter theologian than anybody we've run into in Matthew's gospel so far. And so what does he do? He comes and he falls at the feet of the king and he kisses his feet, worshipping him. Do you know in the ancient world, anywhere where the Roman Empire had either colonized or annexed and the land of Israel was annexed, means they'd gone in and occupied. It was against the law to recognize the kingship of anyone but the Roman emperor of Rome. It was against the law. Even to say the words, another king, you could be killed for that by the Romans. Years before this story happens, this story happens around 30 AD maybe. And years before this in 14 AD, the, the Emperor Tiberius made a rule. Anyone who talks about any other king or any other kingdom within the bounds of the Roman Empire is punishable by death. And if you're a Praetorian guard, one of the guards whose job was to guard the castles and the household and the Roman worship centre, then you didn't even have to take that person to trial. You could just remove your sword and cut off their head on the spot without a trial and say, they talked about another king. So you better believe it when Jesus is walking around going, the kingdom of God is here. He's ruffling some serious feathers. And this leper, do you realize what he's doing when he goes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus? He's flying in the face of even what the laws of the land say that you can do. He comes and he worships Jesus. And it's an amazing, it's not just like, oh, maybe if you feel like it, it's like a groundbreaking moment. He's treating Jesus like Jesus is God, which is the right answer. And it's because he believes that Jesus is God that causes the question, Jesus, since you're God, if you were willing to heal me, you could. Have you thought about what a revolutionary thing that is? See, if you're a leper in the ancient world, there's a proper way to get cleansed of your leprosy. You go to the temple gate there's a special door for you to come so no one can be contaminated by your filthy leprous ways. And you wait and a certain priest comes out and there's a two-week process where you offer the sacrifices, get symbolically washed, get ritually shaved and all sorts of stuff that if you go through that process, by the end of it, you will be cleansed of your leprosy. And it's very expensive. You've got to bring bird sacrifices and two lambs and a ewe and sometimes a calf. There's all sorts of sacrifices. And most of the time a leper might wait their whole life just to save up the money to take that sacrifice to the temple to get the priest to do what the priest is supposed to do. Very expensive, very time-consuming, very isolating. And if you were a leper in the first century Israelite community, you knew, you got leprosy, you want to be cleansed? Fine, we'll get to the temple and follow the rules and do what the temple says. So you've got to understand, beneath the pulse of this story, something amazing has happened. Because this leper comes and worships Jesus and says, Jesus, if you want to, you can make me clean. In Leviticus 13 and 14, you get the story of the sacrifices. Read it sometime. It's crazy. Because everyone in Israel would say, if you go and do the right sacrifices at the temple and you get shaved and bathed and you go and do your seven days here and your seven days there, then you will be made clean. So what this leper is actually saying to Jesus is, Jesus, I know there's a way, there's a different way to deal with this problem. 
I know there's a different way to address this issue and everyone would be expecting me to do it. I would even be expecting myself to do it. And that's a way that's gonna cost me everything that I have. That's a way that's gonna cost me money. It's gonna cost me time. But he looks at Jesus and he doesn't just see the King of God's kingdom. Listen to this. He sees the replacement for every other possible way for him to deal with this problem. And he recognises it in Jesus. Jesus, there's all these other ways to fix myself, but you're the best way. Where did he get that idea? I don't know. There's not that many miracle stories in the gospel yet. He hasn't seen Jesus do much yet. He has a revelation of who Jesus is. You, you could do it, Jesus, would you? And you can see why Jesus is so impressed with his faith. Because Jesus loves it when we treat him like a king and we worship him. Worship precedes an encounter with Jesus. That's exactly why we worship at the start of our services. We worship because together we set an atmosphere. Together we build a throne for God. God is enthroned on the praises of His people, the Bible says. And so what happens when we worship, it wouldn't matter if we worshipped in this building or an open field or in a slum in Mumbai under black plastic, which I've done many times and seen God move in people's lives. And why? Because in a lot of religions, the place is important. No, in Christianity, the place is not important. The person is important. And that means that we could worship Jesus anywhere and wherever we worship Him suddenly becomes a holy temple. Because what makes it holy is not the bricks and mortar, but the ones joining to Him in His kingdom. Worship precedes an encounter. He worships Jesus and that is the basis for Jesus to move in His life. Here's the second one. The true heart of worship is when Jesus replaces every other strategy in my life. Jesus, I come to you You replace religion. You replace self-indulgence. You replace addiction. You replace my pain. You replace my loneliness. You replace every other way I would fix myself. You You replace my temper. You replace my ego. You replace my sexual issues. You replace my addictions. You replace my shame. See, what he does is he comes to Jesus and says, I recognize in you, you could heal me instead of all that other stuff. That's the heart of worship. When we say, Jesus, I'll let go of everything else and just hang on to you. That creates a dynamic where Jesus can move in our life. Here's the third thing. That my iPad died. Here's the third thing. In response to his worship and in response to his belief, Jesus changes his life. And he does it in a specific way. He reaches out his hand and he touches him. Think about this. People never touched lepers because they were scared. You're polluted, you're contaminated, you're contagious. And if I touch you, I will catch what you have. But this is what's amazing about Jesus, right? Jesus says, I am full of life. I am full of grace. I am full of love. I am full of the kingdom of God. I am full of victory. And this is what Jesus says. And if I touch you, you'll catch what I have. Now that's why you worship Jesus. That's why we want an encounter with Jesus. Because my life cycles upwards when I catch what He has. You understand? That's why we pray for each other. Think about what Christians do. Not many religions do it this way. We, we lay hands on each other and we communicate the anointing and presence and power of God. We're authorized by Scripture to do that. We don't just pray for you. We put a hand on you. And we believe when we pray for you and put a hand on you that you are catching something of the Holy Spirit from us. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen it happen. I remember one time being driven by a guy to a meeting that I was preaching at and he, all the way he talked about how he didn't like Christianity, he didn't like Christians, all that sort of stuff. 
And at the end of the meeting where I'd preached the gospel, I said, who wants to give their life to Jesus? I thought he was saying yes because he was waving at me. But what he was really doing is telling me, I'm over here when you want to leave. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool. He wants to give his life to Jesus. And I walked over and prayed for him. And this man who swore to me he didn't want anything to do with Christianity, didn't want anything to do with Christians, he fell on the ground, overcome with the presence of God and gave his life to Jesus Christ right on the spot, tears streaming down his face. Do you know what happened? He caught God. He caught God. I don't know why it happened through like this ugly thing, but it just happened. That's just the way things work. Okay, so Jesus touches him. And because Jesus touches him, he speaks his word over him. I am willing, he says, be cleansed. And immediately he was cleansed. We worship Jesus because worship precedes an encounter. How do we worship? We truly worship Jesus when we stand and in our mind's eye, we take a posture like that letter where we, like that leper, where we stretch ourselves out at the feet of Jesus, kissing his feet. Well, we don't actually kiss his feet because like they're not here. So we sing songs and we raise our hands and we pray in faith. But you know what I'm imagining whenever I'm doing that stuff? When I stand in worship like this, I learned long ago that as I do that, I encounter Jesus. I could stand in the very same worship service like this. And I'm not going to get anything. I'm not going to sense God's presence. I'm not going to feel God's presence. And then someone else will come to me. This has happened to me in times where I was a new believer and I had really bad attitudes and I was really broken. And they'd come and go, wasn't that amazing? God's presence was awesome in church tonight. I was like, oh, it was okay. I'm actually hungry. I'm going to go have a smoke. Why? Because I wasn't worshipping, so I wasn't encountering. So he touches in response to worship. And he speaks his word, be cleansed, and that man is cleansed. So here's the thing. You and I, we worship Jesus not because of what we can get, but because he is the king of God's kingdom and demands of all of the universe worship for himself. And we get a choice whether we will worship him in this life or in the next. But we will do it in the next. The question is whether we will have done it willingly in this life, which brings us into his kingdom, or whether we will find ourselves as those on the day of judgment of whom the scripture says one day every knee will bow before Jesus and one day every tongue will confess he is Lord. And we have this short life to do it voluntarily before we do it out of fear and awe when we are actually face to face revealed with the judge of the universe. And you better believe then we would fall on our face. There's a reason why when God appears to people throughout the scripture numerous times, he says, fear not. You know why? Because God could be blooming scary. But he's not scary when someone comes in worship. He responds with a healing touch, a compassionate touch, a loving touch. So stand on your feet. This is what we're going to do before we finish our service. I want to do two things. I hope you don't feel like I've beat you up tonight. I only talked about that list of issues. That's basically my list of all the issues I've been processing through for the last 20 years. And I don't know what would be on your list, but I wonder how many of us, you know, no one else knows, but we know there's something going on in there. I wonder if for a second, again, together, we could fill this place with the worship of God. And we, all of us, would worship Jesus as this band leads us in a song. And we would worship Jesus and say, Jesus, Will you cleanse me of the things that pollute my life? Will you heal me of the things that pollute my life? Because here's what I know. When you do that, Jesus does it. He does it. I, 
I read so many motivational books about how to get off drugs and give up smoking and stop having sex with everyone that moves and all sorts of stuff. And then finally, I surrendered my life to Jesus who cleansed me and changed me. I wish I knew this when I was 10 years old, guys. I wish I knew. I've only been doing it now for the last 20. Can you imagine what a wholesome individual I'd be if I'd been doing it for the last 40 years? How about you? You might have done it for a long time. But isn't it right now in this moment of time for us to abandon ourselves to worship Jesus? Say, Jesus, just cleanse me of anything that pollutes my life. No one else has to know. We're going to worship. Then I'm going to come back up and I'm going to pray for a couple of people. Okay, so why don't we just band, sing, lead us in a song. Let us worship for just a second. Thank you for joining us in the podcast. For more information about Desert Life Church, go to desertlifechurch.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day and remember, you belong here.